This program is brought to you by DJ's Goalpost Sports Bar and Grill. again everybody and welcome to another edition of the Pippin Dodds Packers podcast and of course we have the great Wayne Larravee with us for another dance we are thankful for that he of course has that wonderful call the dagger is the Packers play-by-play voice but also NBA voice grew up a Knicks fan had a lot to do with the Chicago Bulls run and Michael Jordan and we want to expound on that last dance but Wayne a pleasure to have you first of all Growing up a Knicks fan, there are so many connections and correlations and teamwork and Phil Jackson at the center, right? Yeah, there really was. Um, Red Holtzman was a brilliant coach. Um, uh, he coached as much people as he did X's and O's. And, uh, you know, that, that's what made that team in that era in the early 70s really, uh, um, you know, really something to behold. J.D., fire away. Sure. No, I, I was intrigued the last time we were talking about your background and uh, really the, the, uh, the main story in sports probably the last four months since COVID was the last dance. And to understand truly, to put it in perspective, you covered the Bulls from 91 on TV. So you were right there. Your voice appeared uh, at least 10 times. I heard you were asking questions or they were using your voice for the description of a video of a highlight for Jordan. Uh, and uh, so I just wanted to get uh, your perspective on it. And it, it seemed like you understood Phil Jackson. And if you understand Phil Jackson, because you were just familiar with him from your days as a Nick fan. So I was kind of intrigued. So I wanted to kind of go back and go back to those great Knicks teams first, because that, I think brings you up to speed. You can't really totally understand the last dance unless you go back to those Knicks teams. Yeah, you know, the Knicks are a franchise that everyone knows um, has not had a whole lot of success. And uh, going into the 1969-70 season, I don't think they had ever won an NBA championship. And, and the, but they had a group of players together that, that seemed to fit. And they had a coach that that, as I mentioned before, coached every bit as much from um, the emotion, the person, the people aspect of it as anything else. And uh, there was a premium on teamwork, not individual play. And we see, you know, in the NBA over the decades, the league is always because, again, you have these small groups of people. These aren't 53-man rosters, 24, 25, 26-man rosters. These are rosters of about 15 and maybe 10 of those players actually uh, play for you. So the teamwork aspect that Phil um, Phil Jackson was a part of as the sixth man for those Knicks teams uh, that Red Holtzman fostered really had a tremendous influence on Phil. Um, it, it was about team. It was not about individuals. But it's interesting that it, within that team concept, those Knicks teams won two world championships in a period of four or five years. Um, and every one of those starters on those Knicks teams from Walt Frazier and Earl Monroe in the backcourt, Bradley DeBusher and Willis Reed up front, they're all in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And yet the, the, the reason what made them special weren't their individual talents, but the way they were melded together as a team. Yeah, the interesting, the interesting one, I, I followed basketball, probably NBA beginning in 67, and it seemed like 
the uh, the Celtics were on every the, the national TV games on ABC on Sundays. That's where I kind of became a Celtic fan, like in Bill Russell. But those those Nick teams and um, not only were they they're an interesting group of players because I remember my dad buying books that were written by um, Bill Bradley, A Sense of Where You Are, where he talked about where being at Princeton, being a superstar at Princeton. These guys weren't just basketball players. They had much more to offer than that. Yeah, they really did. And, you know, the thing about it is the, the intelligence of that team. Bill Russell was uh, doing the an, um, analysis for ABC television uh, in that era. He had retired from the Celtics after the 80, uh, the, two, uh, the 19, uh, 1968 and uh, so he had become an analyst uh, along with Keith Jackson on the ABC broadcast. He talked about the intelligence of the Knicks teams. And after they won the title in 72, he thought, he said, that this has got to be maybe the most intelligent basketball team uh, in the history of the game. Um, and it's interesting because what they did was you had Bill Bradley, okay, uh, Princeton. Uh, you had uh, Earl Monroe, Streets of New York. You had Dean Memminger, who was a New York kid who went to Marquette. Um, you had Walt Frazier, Southern Illinois. Uh, again, a kid, uh, you know, who, who didn't have this Ivy League background. You had Dave DeBusher, who was just a hardworking athlete. And, and then Willis Reed from the South. You had a lot of divergent personalities. People came from different parts of the country and different slices uh, of American society. And to put that together, people think, well, that just happens and it's all about talent. And it's really not. Pro sports is not all about talent because everybody's talented. You don't get to the pro level without being talented in any sport. So what, what happens is the winners are the teams that have a better command of the intangibles that it takes to win. And I see that in football every day in the NFL. I saw that in uh, basketball covering those great Bulls teams. And, and uh, certainly it's got to be the same thing in in hockey and, and uh, certainly baseball as well. It's not just about talent. If it was just about talent, the Los Angeles Dodgers would be working on their fourth straight World Series championship. <laughs> yeah. The New Orleans Saints would have two Super Bowls in a row going for them because those are the most talented teams roster-wise on paper in those two sports. But there's more to it than that. And sometimes it comes together and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it doesn't come together every year. Maybe you win the title one year, and the next year, you can't get out of your own way. And you find, rediscover whatever it was, that chemistry that made you a champion, and you win another title somewhere down the road. So there's a lot that goes into it, but I think the spiritual aspect, and I, Phil Jackson was the first guy I've ever talked to that, that talked so much about the spiritual aspect of the game. And I think he got that pretty much from Red Holtzman. And, and that's what, uh, that's what I, you know, so as I watched those Bulls teams, my mind kept racing back to my high school days in watching those Knicks teams that won those two championships. Wayne, J.D. brought up a great point uh, to your point in saying that Phil Jackson, of course, at the center uh, with his experience as a player with the Knicks and then Red Holtzman, uh, supposedly, I guess he would be the guy who mentored him. And this Zen master who knew how to get to Michael Jordan to the point where, hey, you know, you don't have to make all the shots. We can share it. Uh, could you just talk about the relationship between Holtzman and Jackson and how Red's handprint, thumbprint, whatever you might want to say, could be said to have been on the Bulls championship teams? 
Yeah, I, I agree with that, Tom, because he had such an influence on Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson came to New York uh, kind of as a free spirit out of uh, the Dakotas. It was the 60s, um, you know, mid-60s, and, and all of the different revolutions, the flower child thing, all that stuff, the tie-dye stuff, it was all happening. And the 60s is, well, people that are watching this uh, podcast, many of them weren't even around in the 60s, but the 60s were a volatile time. Anybody who reads the history books knows of the political assassinations that happened in our country to the highest level and all the different things that were going on, the uh, crusade for uh, uh, voting rights for black Americans and all the things that were happening. And it's, it's funny how so many of them are happening again today. Um, you know, we, we fail to learn as a society very much from history. We, we don't it seems to me like we don't advance as much for a quote-unquote intelligent society. Now, we don't seem to learn from history. We're having the same racial issues today, very similar to what we had in the 60s. But in addition to the racial issues in the 60s, we had a sexual revolution happening. We had the Vietnam War happening. There was so much going on in this country back then. Um, Phil Jackson was a product of all of that. He was in his early 20s, came out of the Dakotas, um, lands with the Knicks somehow and uh, starts just soaking in this guy, Red Holtzman, and his philosophy of bringing people and teams together. And in that era, you have to understand in that particular point uh, in our country's history, it wasn't easy to put any group of people together on anything. Sports not being, uh, not being precluded from that at all. Uh, so the, the fact that Phil Jackson was a part of all of that and understood how Red Holtzman put this team together in this volatile time, I think he took a lot from that. And yes, I do feel Red Holtzman, although he doesn't get any credit for it, uh, certainly had a hand in those Bulls teams that won six championships. That 69 team, 69-70 team, had the famous final series with the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. I think it was in game five, the uh, Willis Reed hurt his quad or his knee. It was a muscle issue with his knee and he was debilitated. He left the game and the Knicks came back and, and beat him. I think they were down by 16 or so and the Knicks came back and beat him in game five. And that might have been the game Jerry West hit that 75-foot shot. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing series there, to tie the game at the end of the game to put it in overtime. But um, the Knicks won that game lost game six, so it came all into game seven, and Reed was probably at 20%, and he had his leg wrapped. I remember as a kid watching that, talk about that game, Wayne, that game seven, because that was the loudest, even on my TV at home, I thought that was the loudest I'd ever heard a crowd. You know, it's, Garden. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that's part of the lore of this Madison Square Garden, and why all these players, Jordan especially, just love playing there, but that evening, um, Willis Reed came out, and um, he came out just as the warm-ups were concluding. And he got on the court, and he was dragging his knee, and the crowd just went wild. And I think it gave his teammates a tremendous lift. Willis only played a few minutes in that game. He hit a shot early on, and his team took it from there. And, and really, Walt Frazier had his Hall of Fame moment at that in that game and really started dominating. But the Knicks took off from there and kind of routed the Lakers in game seven. It was a game seven loss that Jerry West to this day will tell you that um, he just can't get over it. Uh, he felt the Lakers should have won that game and should have won that uh, series and uh, that championship. But uh, it was the emotion of the matter uh, of the game of the evening 
Um, Willis just had to get on the court, and that's the emotional lift his team needed to beat a, uh, let's be honest, a superior on paper Lakers team with Will Chamberlain and Jerry West and Gail Goodrich in that backcourt. And uh, uh, they had a great ball club. And, I, you know, it, it to me looks like, um, you know, that's one of those things that makes sports special. Um, that's the extra ingredient that doesn't go into X's and O's. How do you account for that? You can't coach that. Um, you know, the emotion of playing in a moment like that. And that's what the Knicks took off on uh, because Willis Blake contributed very little to that game outside of the fact that his presence was there and he made a bucket or two early on. Wayne, you're so right, though. It was a seminal moment. I recall myself, it just sticks out in history. John said, watching it on his TV, it was uh, as if it was choreographed. He comes out, yep. as you said, late for the warm-ups. The crowd goes wild. And he makes a J, maybe two, at least the one. And as you point out, it really lifted them to victory, uh, notwithstanding all that Clyde did, huh? Yeah, I think you're right, Tom. You know, his presence lifted them to that victory. And and um, so, you know, I mean, those are the things that, that legend is made of. And uh, Willis had suffered a knee injury. He really wasn't himself the following year. It took him two years to kind of overcome that knee injury. And to be honest with you guys, back then, I have to understand, uh, kids today wouldn't understand this because back then, I mean, people would get knee surgery back then. And any kind, anytime they cut on your knee, it was a surgery. It took years to come back from Today they do arthroscopic surgery and guys go in just to get their knee cleaned up, you know, whether they need it or not sometimes. So it's it's not a big deal today. But back then, before we had the technology medically we have today, that was a big deal. You got your knee cut on and you were in for a long rehab. Back, back when I played in the 60s and the 70s, you would go to high school games and you could see in warm-ups where the ball would go in the basket and the net was a lot smaller back then, and there'd be two balls that would get stuck together and it wouldn't go through. And the Knicks had those real short nets at the uh, at Madison Square Garden where the ball would go through and it would kind of, it wouldn't go right through like it is today. It kind of go in there and circular come down, which was just a real big advantage for uh, when you're playing a fast break team that if you score, they could inbound it and come down. That net would just be a little bit shorter and the, the ball would come out. And I can just picture Willis Reed throwing that lefty jumper and the ball kind of going around through the net, just not pure and like it would today. Yeah, I gave them a chance to set up their defense. <laughs> it <was> really <laughs> Wayne, I absolutely loved your perspective, you know, bigger picture, be it racism, assassinations, things of, of that nature. And then talking of we have so much, if you will, disunity today. We, and yet people such as Red Holtzman and Phil Jackson brought people together. And now we face these times and here comes the last dance with record numbers, with nothing else going on to speak of, especially at the time for Michael Jordan. What was your perspective on it? As John said, you were a part of it. We understand that uh, the, the last editorial judgment was all MJ's. I thought it was fascinating, particularly given the access that they gave him and that they yeah. gave well, they were given. It was interesting, the camera crew um, for that last season, the NBA Entertainment, um, uh, set up uh, the camera crew uh, and got permission from uh, the Bulls, number one, and Jordan, number two, to come in and, and they gave them carte blanche to film. And, you know, so they were everywhere with us. Uh, they were behind the scenes. They were getting film footage 
um, that no other entity, including the networks, got. Um, you, they were around constantly. We saw them all the time. They were in the huddles during timeouts. They were in the locker room before anyone else was. They were uh, in the hallways everywhere. Um, uh, they, they became part of almost like the uh, uh, wallpaper on the wall. They were there for everything. So they were, you got used to them. Um, and I was kind of anxious to see, and I thought maybe a year later or whatever, we'd come out, we'd see the, this film and all that. I was kind of looking forward to that. But it took 20-some years before they actually uh, put that all together. And, you know, every, all the parties agreed to, to uh, this series. And I thought it was good. I, I thought it was really good. Um, it, it brought back a lot of memories for me, especially of the people I saw in those videos. Um, but it also, I think, uh, you know, was well put together in a story type format um, that gave, there, there was some drama to it. And I, I thought it, that part of it was really well done. Uh, so it took 20 years, but it was well worth the wait. <laughs> so Wayne, in, in, uh, you came to Chicago in, from Kansas City in 85 to do the Bears. And that led up to then the, the, the Bulls won a championship in 1991. Then they changed their TV around. Is that what happened? And then you joined their TV crew? Yeah, Jim, Ir um, uh, no, Jim Irwin, but um, Jim Durham left uh, Chicago. And, you know, he had he brought, he was a longtime voice of the Bulls. He, uh, you know, uh, in a contract situation, just left town and went on to do some other great things in the NBA elsewhere. But... Uh, that opened up, uh, you know, three jobs, actually. Um, the Bulls hired Neil Funk to do the radio from Philadelphia. Um, they hired Tom Doerr to do uh, uh, the cable games on, uh, you know, the Fox Sports. Or, uh, it wasn't Fox at the time, but it was Sports Vision at the time. Um, so he did the cable games, and then WGN hired me to do the D WGN games So uh, on TV. So... It took three of us to replace one of JD, and I, I often would say to Jim Durham when I'd see him along the way, I'd say, "Hey, it only took three of us to replace you in Chicago." So, <laughs> but it was great. It, it was it worked out really well, and and it was uh, you know it was an honor to be doing that, and and it had a great deal of fun doing it. It was it, it was really you know like following a rock group around uh, for a few years. Wanted wanted to ask you uh, kind of the major players to set this up. So you were in Chicago and you watched the Bulls. Uh, build their team. Jerry Krause, kind of a baseball scout that became a basketball scout, made some major moves. Now, obviously, Michael Jordan fell into, into the Bulls' lap, which was which a, a great move, and Sam Bowie got, getting drafted by Portland because they had Clyde Drexler. That You got to be lucky, too. So you had Jordan, but Jerry, talk about Jerry Krause. He was the guy that built it up and then broke it up. And, uh, and then also talk about the owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, if you could. Well, um, Michael Jordan was drafted by Rod Thorne, um, who readily admitted that um, had there were three key players in that draft. There was Jordan, there was Elijah, Akeem Olajuwon, Sam Bowie. Um, and, you know, Rod Thorne said, if I had a chance to, I would have drafted Olajuwon um, ahead of Jordan. He, he admitted that. And... But um, Bowie went number one, and then Elijah won, and then Jordan in that draft, if I recall correctly. And Jordan was picked by the Bulls. Um, and, you know, so Jordan was in, in – he was already a budding star when Jerry Krause came on the scene. And what Jerry did, the brilliance of Jerry Krause in that era, 
was that he figured out the right people to put around Jordan. They had a, a couple of years. Jordan and the Bulls were going on for six years without winning anything. And um, the culture had to change, and the whole uh, feel of that team had to change. And um, what Krauss did when he came in was he put together a great draft in which he maneuvered to get both Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant. And now the pieces, they had a three-piece setup on that team. Those are key players. But then he also took um, Charles Oakley, who was very close with Jordan, his young superstar. He traded him to the New York Knicks and brought in Bill Cartwright, another key piece that, again, Jordan wasn't happy with this at all. Doug Collins was the coach at the time. They kept uh, running into the Detroit Pistons, kept losing in the playoffs to the Pistons. And it was Kraus in Reinstorp, but Kraus specifically who figured, well, we need a change as, a, as head coach. And Doug Collins is a, was an excellent coach. But, you know, they felt like they needed someone else to get the Bulls from point A to point B or B to A, however you want to do the analogy. And at, at, on staff, they had this guy, Phil Jackson. And uh, Jerry Kraus felt Phil Jackson was the guy to get that done. And, in fact, uh, that's how it all happened. Uh, I'll, how it all came together. On that staff also happened to be Tex Witter, who had this, um, what for the NBA was a very unusual offensive concept. And that was a triangle offense in which everybody touches the ball almost every trip down the floor. They share the basketball. Well, this was right up Phil Jackson's alley from Red Holtzman days. And they put in that offense. And uh, Michael Jordan resisted that for a couple of years. But uh, nonetheless, you know, they kept trying to explain to him, Michael, when it's really crucial, the ball will find you. You, you won't have to go after the ball. The ball will find you in this offense. And it took a while, but Jordan finally caught on to it. And uh, once he did, that's when they took off. Yeah, Tex Winter uh, had some Marquette ties during, I, I believe he started playing. He's a very good basketball player. I want to say at USC in Southern California before World War II. And then he signed up, he enlisted and he was assigned to Great Lakes Naval Base. And he wanted to play basketball. So they said, why don't you come up to Marquette? So for a cup of coffee, Tex Winter played for Marquette, 1944-1945. And he then went back. I think he was coaching at Kansas State after the war. And the Jesuits remembered how impressive he was. So they brought him on as the youngest coach in Division One in 1951 for Marquette. So he coached for three, two years at Marquette and then Kansas State, their great coach retired. So he went down to Kansas State and just started his legendary career. But Tex Winter was the guy who is known for taking Marquette, this regional university, and making it national. And he went head to head with Wisconsin recruiting athlete, the farm kids from upstate. So he brought a lot of talent into Marquette. Marquette really had a role in the 50s because of the recruiting and the, uh, all the hard work that Tex Winter did. So he was really the one that started it probably 15 years before McGuire got there. Yeah. You know, Tex was a, a brilliant offensive strategist in mind. Um, you know, the Bulls had a great coaching staff around Phil Jackson. You had Tex Winter on the offensive end. You had a guy by the name of Johnny Bach on the defensive end. And he developed a thing they called the Doberman defense. And that was Pippen and Jordan out front 
two tremendous defensive players. Everyone remembers Jordan's all his dunks and all the offensive exploits. He was one of the top five defensive guards in the league every year he played. And Pippen was at least that, maybe even better. And they had those guys at the top of that defense. Horace Grant was another very good defensive player. And that was Johnny Bach who schemed that defense. And that was a big part of it. He didn't get a lot of talk or a lot of run in that, uh, um, in that series, The Last Dance. And I, be, and I was surprised because he was so much a part of how they won and what they did to win. Uh, I was thinking about uh, your comments regarding Jerry Krause, and I know that egos got in the way and eventually players disdained in the whole Scotty Pippen, the contract. But as you know better than anybody outside the organization itself, Jerry Krause was incredible. Uh, it doesn't happen without Jerry Krause for Michael Jordan, correct? Nope. No question about it, Tom, because Jordan had played a number of years. Remember, until they got the right people around him, Jordan led the league in scoring. That was no problem. But the Bulls weren't going anywhere. And until they got the right people around him and matured those people, um, you know, and, and Krause did a tremendous job of putting the right pieces in place on those teams. And, you know, that's not easy to do. And, in fact, Jerry thought he could do it again without Jordan. Um, and was unable to do so after the last dance. Um, but, but give Jerry Krause his due. He had a feel for talent and a feel for what would work for the Bulls. Was he a baseball scout first? Absolutely. But um, he also had, I think, a great feel for people and how people work together and the right people to put into the mix. Cartwright was a huge addition to that team. Um, you know, they had a guy by the name of John Paxson who later became their general manager. Uh, for many years. Uh, he was an integral part of that team. They replaced John Paxson when uh, Pax retired with Steve Kerr. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not just about talent. It's about the right talent that fits together. That's how teams win on the pro level. Sidney Moncrief used to say that he was more proud of the Bucks winning 60 games in the 80s because that was pre-expansion. So, when you had those teams like Miami and Orlando and Toronto and Charlotte came in, it diffused the talent. There used to be, in the 70s and 80s, it seemed like the, uh, the 12th man on, that, on the NBA teams was pretty darn good. But after expansion, it diffused a little bit, which was kind of a double-edged sword. It made it harder to rebuild your team because now there's 30 teams in the draft. But on the other hand, if you had your team, it might have been easier to win championships again and again and again because other teams really couldn't become like the Knicks of the 60s and have just a power-packed lineup where you could draft these players where the first round is 12 to 15 rather than 30. Yeah, I agree with that, John. Um, you know, initially it helps the teams that are established, the better teams. But you're, you're right, as you go along um, after expansion, 10 years down the road, it's really hard. Now you've got, as you mentioned, too many cooks in the, in, in the kitchen, and it's hard to put together the right recipe. Uh, so I, I really think that, yeah, it's tougher to win today in football and in basketball and even hockey, obviously, because of the fact that the leagues are so big. I mean, I go back to the Packers teams I used to watch in the 60s. Well, the NFL was 16 teams. The AFL was 14 or 15. And, and that's what you had. Um, and you really only had to, to beat out 16 teams to win the championship in the NFL. 
Well, now you've got, what, 32 NFL teams out there. And, um, you know, it, it's just a lot tougher uh, to overcome all of that. And I same thing with basketball. It's harder to put together teams that can make a concerted run um, and, and put together championships like this. In the 80s, the Celtics, two teams dominated in the 80s, actually three. You had the Philadelphia 76ers, you had the Boston Celtics and the L.A. Lakers. Uh, and they dominated in the 80s. In the 90s, it was the Bulls and, and then the Lakers again in the early 2000s. But um, since then, it's teams have had runs, but um, it haven't been quite as dominant as they used to be. Although Golden State certainly it was a throwback team a few years ago. One day we ask, often Wayne, talk about – oh, go ahead, John. I'm oh, sorry. I, I just wanted to um, ask you, uh, the first championship, you didn't cover the – you didn't – I'm sorry, you didn't cover the Bulls at that time, that 90-91 team. But they, they came in and they finally got the monkey off their back. They got past Detroit and they got to the finals. And then there was the, the, the Lakers won that first game. And I'm, I'm sure that kind of the big air bubble in Chicago blew, by all, all, or the big balloon got popped. But boy, then Jordan had that signature move, switching hands and making that lefty move that Marv Albert said, in a, what did he say, an incredible move or a spectacular move. Uh, talk about that first, first championship beating the Lakers in five games. Yeah, that was interesting to watch, John, because they had, as you mentioned, they had finally gotten past the Pistons, beat them four in a row in the Eastern Conference Finals, and here they were against the Lakers. And the Lakers were, again, this was the remnants of their run from the 80s. They had Magic Johnson and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and a very good team, obviously. And the Lakers come in and, and win game one in uh, Chicago Stadium, and the Bulls uh, win the next three games. Um, and I maintain here is where the Bulls became a dynasty. And this is where the Tex winner, Phil Jackson, the whole thing came together. It's game five in Los Angeles, okay? The Bulls are up three games to one. But the Lakers with a win in L.A. and another game coming up after that in L.A., they would get back into this series had they won that game. And with their experience and everything else, all bets would be off, okay? So the, the Lakers are leading by about 10 points in the fourth quarter at the old L.A. Forum. And they're about to get back into the series. And the Bulls call a timeout. And Jackson, you can see, talks to Michael Jordan and pleads with him, Michael, you've got to pass the ball. They're double and triple teaming you. They're not guarding anyone else. Paxson is open. He feels it. He's hitting his three-point shot. So pass the ball. And Jordan is, again, reluctant. Jordan's mentality, the superstar mentality, um, uh, there's a control freak to a, to a person that is supremely talented, the best player in the room, the smartest guy in the room. There's a control factor that is inherent in those kinds of talents. And Jordan's control factor was this. I can't trust these guys, okay? Pippen had a migraine two years ago in Detroit, cost us the series against uh, the Pistons. I can't – Horace Grant's not going to make the crucial shot. It's got to be me. I have to have the ball. I have to get this thing done. That was his whole mentality and approach. He had to take matters into his own hand and get this thing done. Well, it wasn't working. And uh, Jackson pleaded with him, said, hey, listen, pass the ball to Paxson. So Jordan leaves the huddle. He's kind of shaking his head. He's saying, well, I'll show him. Uh, you know, I'll pass the ball to Paxson, and we blow this game, and next night I'll get, I'll get it done on my own. Um, he passed the ball to Paxson, and Paxson hit one three-point shot after another. The Bulls rallied from behind. They won game five, won the championship. It was that moment when everything crystallized 
for Michael Jordan, Phil Jackson, Tex Winter, and the Bulls. They don't win six championships unless that moment in L.A. happens when Jordan gives up the ball and the Bulls win. And Jordan understands clearly, finally, and the big factor is believes that, hey, you can trust your teammates. And, in fact, you have to trust your teammates to win. The analogy, the analogy to that story, I think, would be Brett Favre with Mike Holmgren in 1995 where Favre had been the quarterback in 92, 93, 94, 95. He hurts his ankle significantly. Holmgren says to him, let the West Coast offense help you. And he played the Bears and he threw five touchdown passes against the Bears. And then, then a week later, he played against, I think it was Tampa Bay. And the safety for the old, the old uh, Dallas Cowboys was Thomas Elliott. I think his name is Thomas Everett. Thomas Everett. I interviewed him after the Tampa Bay game because he signed with Tampa Bay. And he said, oh, no, I'm looking at this guy. And he's going through the progressions like Joe Montana, but he's got a better arm. So it took that injury for Farr's ankle to kind of sit back. He thought he had to make the play. And Everett said in Dallas, we would just kind of guard the first option to Sharp. Farr would get happy feet in the pocket, make a bonehead move and a bonehead mistake. He said after that, if he let, when he let the West Coast offense, he trusted Holmgren, he let the offense do it, and Favre became the MVP. Yeah, I mean, there are seminal moments like that, I think, for players and teams, great players and great teams, that have to happen. And, and you look back and you say, well, if that didn't happen, um, they may not have been successful or as successful as they were. Uh, so, you know, I think with the Bulls, maybe they win that series. They were up three, getting three to one. And it would, if they lose that game in L.A., it's three to two. And uh, maybe the Lakers get back into it. Maybe not. Maybe Jordan wins uh, that game, the next game. But it doesn't come together. His belief is, uh, you know, it, it got to the point for them where, uh, you know, Jordan so much believed in that offense that uh, that he began directing it. And so. I, I think that that was a big part of it. And, you know, those moments have to happen. They have to crystallize uh, for a team, for a player, uh, for a group to really attain that ultimate success. Brilliant insight from Wayne Larrabee, the marvelous voice of the Green Bay Packers on the Pip and Dodds Packers podcast. But talking about Michael Jordan, the Knicks, the Bulls, and, and, and J John mentioned this, and I, and I was thinking the same thing when he asked the question. We consider Brett Favre perhaps to be the NFL's greatest competitor ever. Might be overstatement. Certainly you could say that about Michael Jordan, uh, uh, such a fierce competitor. What touched me in... The last dance, Wayne, and I'd love your perspective. Again, you were closer to MJ than, than most of us, for sure. Um, the tears in his eyes. He was asked something about having to be the way he was in practice and just overbearing and, he, you know, it, to the point where he put his reputation out there from a friend's perspective. He, he couldn't be liked because he had to be this leader to, this, to the max and then some. And, and yet there were tears, like we all want to be accepted. 
we, we all want to be acknowledged as getting along. Did you get any of that, that this is the way he had to be? A guy with a good heart, I think a good man, but this is just the way it was going to be for him to get to where he wanted to go and drag everybody else with him. Yeah, Michael is a very emotional individual, um, and his emotions run tremendously deep. Uh, you know, he's the best friend you'll ever have, uh, unless you don't cross him. Don't cross him. Um, he is the toughest leader you'll ever have. And if you were to go back to those days and ask the Bill Wennington's and the Steve Kerr's and, and others uh, playing with and under Michael Jordan, wasn't a real fun experience necessarily. It was hard work. It was tough stuff. Michael was about tough love. That's how he led. Other people lead in different ways, but you've got to be yourself. And and he is that kind of a driving force. Um, you know, I, I, I read a lot about Lombardi. I never mentioned met the man, but um, I get I saw Lombardi in Jordan as I watched those teams and watched the way Michael led those teams. Um, he loved those guys. But gosh, you wouldn't know it watching it in practice and some of the things he did during the games to propel that team to uh, its greatest heights. There's no question that if you ask the Bulls who played with Jordan in the 90s, you know, who was your favorite teammate of those teams? And, and I'm sure the, the who would Michael would not win that poll. He was not their favorite teammate. Most respected, he would win the poll unanimous, unanimously. A favorite teammate was probably Scottie Pippen. And Pippen was Jordan's wingman in more ways than one, not just on the court, but off the court as well. There was good cop, bad cop. Pippen was the good cop. He would pick up the pieces after Jordan disrobed somebody on the practice floor, that type of thing. Um, he was the guy who salved the wound that Michael caused as he drove that team uh, to greater heights. So I, I think that was a big role that Pippen doesn't get a lot of credit for. But Pippen was a beloved teammate. Jordan was the most respected teammate. And they don't win those titles without both of those teammates. Wayne, in the, uh, the first three, Pete, uh, in that the first year that you were, so the second year that they won the championship back-to-back -back was the first year that you uh, began to cover them on, uh, for TV. But they beat the Trailblazers 4-2 uh, to two in the finals. And then the next year they beat... The uh, they beat um, Phoenix, I believe it was in the uh, finals again, four two. Can you talk about those teams? I mean, we're more familiar with the second three, Pete, but can you talk about those two years and what what you remember most about them? Yeah, um, I, I remember again, great team put together. Um, once they got that first championship, that kind of brought it all together, and they played with a certain kind of confidence. Um, that they felt they were the best team, and that was it. And, and it was going to be they were they were the uh, they were on the top of the mountain uh, for so many years. I think the Bulls, uh, you know, they were just trying to climb up the mountain. It goes back to the '70s, Sloan and Van Leer, that great backcourt they had with Bob Love up front, and they could never get by the Lakers. It seemed like, and 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 uh, you know, so they were crawling up the mountaintop. And the same thing with the Bulls as they try to get through the Pistons. Once they beat the Lakers, won that first championship. That, to me, um, seemed to set them on a different level, and they, they carried themselves that way. It was a well-put-together team. Bill Cartwright was a big part of the leadership of that team. Um, you know, you had Paxson, uh, who was another character player, uh, next to, to Jordan in that backcourt, and then Pippen, of course, and Horace Grant. Um, it was a team that had great depth, and, and uh, they, 
They continue to bring in role players like a Bobby Hansen, uh, who, who actually won the game six uh, of that um, uh, Portland series for them with great shooting down the stretch after the Bulls had struggled. So it was a, a team that had really come to come into its own. And they were the best team of the league over the course of those years. And they knew it. And that was a big difference from where they were in that first championship. But I, I felt like the thing that was interesting, John, is the Bulls in their six world championships never let the series get to seven games. They always got it done within six games. In the Lakers series, it was five, but always within six games, they'd get that thing done. Never got to a seventh game. And, and I think that was a big factor uh, in them in winning the championships that they won. I was struck how Jordan was absolutely exhausted at the end of that third year championship. Uh, the, the tank was empty. And it, unfortunately, his father was about to pass away a couple months later after that. But you could just tell, could, could you tell covering the team that he was uh, maybe down a court in terms of oil? Yeah, I thought so. And I felt after that championship in Phoenix, uh, as we were coming back from that, and they won it in Phoenix on a shot by John Paxson in the final seconds. I'll never forget it. Here they are, this triangle offense moving the ball around. Horace Grant, who had a terrible final series, gets the ball to the baseline. You think he's going to go in for a dunk. And he just bailed. He threw that ball out to Paxson in the perimeter like it was a hot potato. There's no way Horace Grant wanted to be in the pen in the ultimate moment of that series. And here's John Paxson out there, Cooley, uh, hitting a three-point shot from the left wing. I'll never forget it. Uh, and, you know, won the championship. But, yeah, I felt like um, those that was kind of it for that team. And then, you know, like you said, right before start of training camp the following year, uh, that following offseason, Jordan retires, and then they've got a whole different feel. And But I give that team that competed that next year without Michael a tremendous amount of credit. They went out and won 55 games. They lost a hard, tough seven-game series to the Knicks um, in, uh, you know, just before the Eastern Conference Finals. But that was a great team. And that was Scottie Pippen coming to his own. B.J. Armstrong became an all-star guard on that team. Uh, Cartwright was still there. Scotty Pippen, as I mentioned, evolving, and Tony Kukoc coming into the mix at that point in time. That was still a great team. You win 55 games after losing Michael Jordan, who only averaged about 30 points a game for that squad. You find a way to win 55 games. I thought that was a great accomplishment. This, you know, listening to you, listening to John, as I point out, I use that word again, it's a treasure. You have called so many, two Super Bowl champions, you name it, college basketball, the affiliation with the Bulls. I just sense such a passion as we're talking about, not only you growing up as a Knicks fan, but this experience of being around the Bulls on an emotional level, as well as a professional level. What was that like? You know, it, it was tremendous, Tom, and, and we all knew it wasn't going to last forever. And I remember, you know, sitting, uh, you know, courtside, uh, we're sitting on the scorer's desk, myself and Tim Hallam, and they're He's the Bulls public relations guy and, and still has been for years and years. And, and we're sitting there. He had been around for a long time. And we're saying, you know, he looked out. He said, you know, look at that guy in those skinny legs. Michael Jordan had this great body, but he had the tiniest legs. He was like a thoroughbred racehorse with these tiny legs holding this great body up. And um, he, said, he said to me, you know, Wayne, look at that guy in the skinny legs there. Uh, don't take it for granted. This isn't going to last forever. And, and so we never did. But, you know, uh, when you're having that much fun, time flies. It, it was great. It was a, a wonderful period to cover a team in sports and to see a team uh, accomplish what they did. And, 
And I was just a fly on the wall, but it was great to be that fly on a wall. One of my uh, high school classmates, and he'll be named, you know, he should remain nameless because I don't want to have him violate any uh, medical oaths or whatever, but he said that he was doing some emergency room work at a hospital in Chicago in the, in the uh, middle 80s. And one of the veteran doctors was just showing him, he would periodically show him old x-rays and he'd show him things just to get him to comment. And so uh, my, my, the doctor, the young doctor comes into the room and he says, uh, gives him an x-ray of a foot. And he said, put that up there. What do you think? And he goes, oh, look at that. Stress fractures and all oh, this and that's going on. He said, how old do you think that person is? And my friend said, oh, I would say he's probably someone 55 to 60. And he says he wears number 23 and he plays for the Chicago Bulls. And he couldn't believe it. So yeah. when you talk to skinny legs, there are a lot of things that he played through in that time. And I remember how touchy, and they, 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 they touched on it in the last dance, how, how touchy Reinsdorf and the coaches were don't wreck, you know, we have Secretariat or Seattle Slough with a bad wheel. Let's be really careful with them. That was that year, I believe it was 86. And uh, Jordan was on this, uh, he came back from that injury and Jerry Krause and everybody, Doug Collins was the coach and they, they had a finite number of minutes I think he could play uh, in a game, 14 minutes, 15 minutes, and it kind of increased as they went along. And if I'm not mistaken, that was the year. And he came back and in the playoffs. He got into a playoff game, a shootout with the Celtics and the Bulls. And, and the Celtics of 86 are one of the great teams in NBA history. Um, that was, you know, uh, Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, Larry Bird, Danny Ainge. That was that whole uh, Dennis Johnson. That was a great, great team. And Jordan went off for, I don't know, 60-some points on him or whatever it was and almost beat him in a playoff game uh, uh, the Celtics eventually won the series. But, you know, yeah, Jordan overcame a lot of things that people never realized. And, and this is long before you got into, um, what was it, time management or nights off from the NBA for time management or something or whatever they call it today. He never took a night off. Even in the preseason when they played, he showed up and played every game because Jordan felt like he said, you know what, there's somebody in this crowd who's going to see me play once in person in their whole lives. And so if I show up and I'm supposed to play and I don't play because I'm getting rest or whatever it is, he says, that's not going to cut it. And so Jordan had a certain, there was a showmanship to him that, that he never wanted to disappoint the audience. And uh, so he played every night, played through some tough injuries. There's no doubt about that. And he had a will to play. And that was the, the other thing. He loved playing and he had a will to play every night. If he's going to go to the arena, He's going to lace them up and play. Otherwise, he didn't even want to be there. You, you mentioned a uh, couple of quick Jordan stories. The first time I ever saw him in person was when Bobby Knight's 84 Olympic team came into Milwaukee at the arena and played uh, Terry Cummings, Dave Corzine, and Mike Dunleavy, a senior. Uh, kind of a, they had a series going on with NBA players. And there was a move. I'm sitting in the, in the end zone. There was a move, Jordan got the ball on the left baseline. He quickly ran down the baseline and Dunleavy came up to draw a charge and he jumps over Dunleavy and dunks it. And I, I just thought, oh, that's when I knew, wow. Then later that summer, 
the Bucks played, I think, two straight exhibition games to open that preseason with the Bulls. And Jordan scored 20, 28 points and 30 points. And Don Nelson, the coach of the Bucks, who hated rookies, just hated them, would only Sidney Moncrief, he would play a little bit, but he just hated to play rookies. At a Penn and Mike club, somebody said, hey, Jordan scored 30 and 28 against you. What do you think of him? And Nelson just kind of paused for a second and said, if that guy remains healthy, he will go down as the greatest basketball player in the history of the game. And I, I remember sitting there thinking, and that's a rookie. And that's Don Nelson, who hates rookies. And then the last quick thing was when, uh, when he scored the 63 on the Celtics, I think it was Mother's Day. I said, he's being guarded by Dennis Johnson, who's being, and he's being doubled by Kevin McHale. These are the best of the best. And the Celtics can't stop this guy. This guy is a force of nature. That was the game. And he was playing, as you said, on the bad wheel. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he was incredible. He, he really was. And I think people understand the aspect of him, uh, how much he gave to the game. And it really affected him as a person. I don't think there's any doubt about that, the game itself. But like, I, like we said before, um, you will not find a finer person or a more loyal person than Michael Jordan. And the way he took care of the people around him, uh, several of those security people whom he got very close to, uh, Gus, who has passed away, and, and Michael, uh, you know, really loved him and kept him on the payroll years after Jordan retired uh, from the game. And, um, you know, so they, he's – but when you're that good um, and you're that big a personality and you're that big a – a player, uh, you know, your life changes. You're not like everyone else. And, and you know, coaches like to coach everybody the same when you, they can't. And Phil Jackson understood that very much. Michael couldn't go out to the ball like the rest, like a Bill Wennington could or, or somebody. And the only way you knew they were a basketball player is just they were really tall. Uh, but nobody even knew who they were. They just knew they were somebody. Um, most players, you know, could go out and have a life, go to a restaurant, whatever. Michael couldn't do any of that. Uh, you know, the geniuses in sports become reclusive, reclusive people. They can't go out and do the things you and I can, can't enjoy life the same way we can. Um, there's no um, anonymity to their lives. And, and that makes it difficult on them. So they're different than us. They're different in the way they have to be handled and the things they do and what they do. He played baseball in 95, or yeah, 95, 96, or, or 94, 95, right around there. Um, and he played for Jerry Reinsdorf's Sox team. And you think this is just a publicity stunt. And then I remember that the Cubs and the White Sox had an exhibition game. Yep. And, and he knocks it, he gets a base hit and knocks the winning runs in. Yeah, he played field that day for the White Sox. And, and it was in Wrigley Field. I was there for the game and it was interesting. It was great. Um, you, you know, Terry Francona mentioned that, and, and again, Jordan went to double A ball. And, yeah, hey, listen, any, anyone else starting out in the rookie league and you're working your way up through A ball and then double A and, and maybe triple A into the majors, Michael, they put him at double A ball because of, um, you know, the, the people that would be involved coming to watch him play and all this other stuff. Um, Tito Francona, who later went on to manage the Red Sox through championship and is a great manager now with the Indians, 
but um, he he was Jordan's manager, and they were very close. And uh, you know, Tito used to say that, "Hey, listen, if Michael had stayed with baseball, he would have eventually made it to the major leagues. Now, he wouldn't have been a superstar the way he was in basketball, but nonetheless, this guy was talented. He wasn't, you know, this was no publicity stunt. Uh, you know, he had potential." What sticks out to me as you talk, Wayne, about the will, you know, the will to be great. He, not that he didn't have the God-given gifts, especially with the basketball. I, and I love that, uh, that insight again on the baseball because that stuck out to me too, what Francona said. He'd have made it to the majors. He just willed himself to be beyond great, did he not? Yes, uh, Tom, I think that's a big part of it. I, I think, and I see that trade in all great players. There is a tremendous will. Do they have God-given gifts? Yes, God-given gifts none of us have. Tiger Woods reminds me of some of these athletes I've been around, like a Michael Jordan, uh, even like a Brett Favre or an Aaron Rodgers. Favre had this happy-go-lucky persona about him, and that was the perception. But everyone knows, anyone who's known Brett knows deep down inside that there was a tremendous drive. Um, you know, it's not just, we've been saying this all throughout this program, it's not just about talent. It's about the drive and the intangibles that make you great, that make a team great. But, um, yeah, Jordan had a tremendous uh, desire to be better than anyone else. Tremendous desire. It was a personal thing with him. And I think all great players had that trait. I think that's what makes them great. Not just their God-given ability, but the, the, uh, the, a lot of people have their God-given ability. There's no question about that. But only a few become the true superstars because of that drive that some of the others who have the same athletic ability don't have that drive, don't have that makeup, and never become uh, the star that they have the ability to be. Jordan returned to uh, the Bulls in 95, late in the 94-95 season. And I remember Marquette was playing at the, uh, the NIT final in 95. And the night before the Marquette had a game, the championship game, Jordan dropped 55 on the uh, Knicks in Madison Square Garden. I think it was an all-time record for most points scored by a player in a game. And they, they lost that year to Orlando. Shaq had his one, Orlando and Shaq, and that Penny Hardaway, that great team, went to the finals. But then the second three-peat series occurred, and they won 72 games. Uh, credit Jerry Krause, he comes up with Dennis Rodman, and you can, you know, you have Dennis Rodman, but if you have the aura of Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman would toe the line, kind of like Randy Moss at New England, or maybe Randy Moss with the Packers under Brett Favre. If you have respect for someone, I think you're you're more likely to to play within yourself. And Jerry Krause got Dennis Rodman. What a master move that was. Well, John, uh, when the Bulls played the, that great Magic team um, in the uh, semifinals of the Eastern Conference uh, that year after Michael came back, they had lost Horace Grant. Horace was on the uh, Orlando team. He had left Chicago as a free agent. Uh, he had it in with Jerry Krause uh, and, and left and went free agency to Orlando. And that, that way he was the last piece in their picture. Uh, you had Penny Hardaway, Shaquille O'Neal, Horace Grant was the third. Um, major player in that group, and and uh, Dennis Scott was also a shooter on that team. They had a great team. Michael Jordan and the Bulls played that team and lost um, in the finals, in, in the semifinals, rather, and it became abundantly clear to everyone involved in the Bulls organization that they had not replaced Horace Grant. They needed 
a four. They needed a rebounder. They needed a guy who could play, rebound, uh, play defense. They didn't need any more offense. They had plenty of that, but they needed to get to the next level. Even with Jordan, they were going to have to get somebody who could rebound. Well, it just so happened that, uh, you know, uh, Dennis had worn out his welcome in San Antonio, and he was available. Uh, Krause really was not sure this was going to work, but he, he said to himself, hey, listen, you've got Phil Jackson who's won these three titles. You've got Michael Jordan, the best player in the game. You've got Scottie Pippen, who hated uh, Dennis Rodman, and they had had an altercation the year before, two years before, when Rodman threw Pippen into the scorer's table. So you had a lot of venom and, and distrust and hate over Dennis Rodman. And, but Krause felt like he had a strong enough structure uh, that if he put this maverick personality into this team, uh, that, that they would be able to police him. And, and um, Phil Jackson especially uh, grew close to Dennis Rodman because, to be honest with you, they were kind of cut from the same type of cloth. Uh, Phil was a free-spirited, he was kind of a radical guy. He fit into the Knicks team because he respected Red Holtzman and Dave DeBuscher and Walt Frazier and uh, all those guys that were a part of the Knicks team. He fit into that even though he was a different kind of guy. He wasn't a guy who fit any certain model. And the same thing with Dennis Rodman. And, you know, Rodman in his emergence with the Bulls was um, based on twofold. It was a respect for Jordan, uh, but it was also uh, Phil Jackson who understood how to incorporate Dennis Rodman into the fabric of this team. And then Rodman and Pippen uh, were able to patch up their, their feud. And uh, I think that's when the Bulls, they got their, they needed 15, 16 rebounds a game. That was what Dennis Rodman did. Also, he played some tremendous defense, became part of Johnny Box Doberman defense, and the Bulls went on their way, like you said, to set a record for number of wins in a regular season and won three straight titles, and Rodman was a huge part of that. It doesn't happen without Dennis Rodman. Give Krause a lot of credit for understanding that you could take this divergent personality that our locker room, and I say this to when I speak to business groups, you have to understand the people in your room. You have to understand uh, what works because you're going to consider a number of people for jobs, okay, and maybe everybody's qualified. Who do you put into that room? Who do you put into your office? How do you make that determination as to who you bring into the fold? And a lot of it has to do with the basics of, hey, this person can fit our locker room. This personality can fit our office. And it doesn't matter what business you're in. It's all business is people-oriented, including sports. And the Bulls understood they could put this personality into their team because their team around this divergent personality, this maverick, is good enough to rein him in. And yeah, there were some things they had to do to accommodate Jay, uh, this guy, Dennis Rodman. Uh, there were some, yeah, he was different from them all, but they understood what he was all about and they understood they needed his contribution on the floor. They could put up a lot of stuff off the floor, but they needed what he brought to the picture. And Dennis understood that as well. I worked with the Raiders for a little bit and Charles Woodson left the Raiders and he was this talent and he was a, he was a good player, but he became a free agent. And the Packers signed him. I think the Packers had to sign him for twice what Tampa Bay offered because he didn't want to come to Green Bay. And he, he kind of came there and um, Al Harris took him under his wing, kind of taught him how this is what I do to watch film. And then he went up to Mike McCarthy, who wanted everybody to come to OTAs. 
in the off-season workouts. He said, Coach, I have this winery. I have some business things I'm doing. This is what I'm going to be doing to keep in shape. I'm going to be in unbelievable shape come July. If you can just let me out of this. And McCarthy said, sure, that's fine. I heard from the Raiders later. I said, what does Woodson think of McCarthy? And, McCart and he said, McCarthy treats me like a man. And his whole attitude between Al Harris and Mike McCarthy, the fit in Green Bay, Charles Woodson became a Hall of Fame talent. It's sometimes you're right, Wayne, it's the fit. And Ted Thompson had a feeling his team needed a certain amount of leadership, needed a, a dash of greatness. And Charles Woodson was that. He was an all-pro player with the Raiders. He didn't have many offers. Um, the Packers uh, were able to get him in free agency. He wasn't a happy camper until about midway through his first year with the team. And, and, and he figured out what it was all about. Um, but, you know, the thing that, that I, I think McCarthy was able to accommodate what Charles Woodson brought. Charles was a guy who had a lot of mileage on his body by the time he got to Green Bay. And Charles was not going to be at Wednesday practices. He might not even make Thursday, but he'd be there for the Friday practice, which was crucial to the weekend and the game plan. And he'd be ready for everything he was going to do. And he did take those young defensive backs under his wing, uh, like a Tremont Williams and a Nick Collins, especially, and taught them how to be pros, what to do, what it takes to break down film. All these guys in college watch film. None of them watch it at the level of a pro. Uh, they don't understand that, and they have to be taught that. And Charles did a lot of that around the seat, around the uh, uh, periphery of the Packers at, under McCarthy. And then by the time he got to the 2007 season, when they really had a great year, a 13-3 campaign, and lost to the Giants in the championship game, by then Charles Woodson was a major force on that team. And, of course, he was player of the year in 2009 and a huge member of that Super Bowl team. But he was a guy who really wasn't happy in Green Bay his first few months there. Just a couple of guys, if you could, guys to watch, Wayne, in terms of uh, uh, people that we may not know. For example, Kadar, that Kadar Holman, the uh, defensive back, impressed me last year, size, speed, hurt his neck in the preseason, was kind of never heard from. Are the Packers looking at him to do something. Yeah, I think he's a guy that Larry McCarron, we saw him in the rookie camp. He's sixth-round draft choice. Didn't think he would, you know, you don't think much of sixth-round draft choices, but he's a kid who right away you you knew, uh, you looked at him and you said, this guy looks the part, and it looks like he can play the part. You can tell by the way he moved out there. I think he's a guy they're quietly confident in. Um, they like Chandon Sullivan. They like what he brought to the picture last year. Another one of those uh, unheralded, uh, he was a free agent uh, picked up from uh, Philadelphia. Uh, they, the Packers have made a living uh, with uh, undrafted defensive backs. Trevon Williams was exactly that kind of guy. Sam Shields went undrafted, uh, and the Packers brought him in. He became a player for them. So they feel like Chandon Sullivan. Um, certainly, Kadar Holman could be two guys. Uh, K.D. Ento uh, is another guy, number 48, whom the Packers like in that secondary. They feel like they're pretty good in the secondary. Uh, and they've got some depth, but these kids have to emerge, and this is going to be a very big year for them. Any other players like that that, that are off the radar that you might that might be on your radar? I, you know, I don't say he's off the radar. I think Ty Summers is a guy I'm anxious to see when he gets into the linebacking court. Had a you know played special teams last year, but in the preseason led the Packers. Had over 200 snaps in preseason play a year ago. Led the Packers in tackles. 
and you could tell he can run. Um, and, you know, he's a guy who can make some plays out there. They didn't trust that he was ready to play in the defense last year. He played a lot of special teams. Uh, Oren Burks, we know about him, a third-round draft choice, looks the part at inside linebacker. This is crucial for him, make or break year for him. Same for Montrevious Adams up front on the defensive line, make or break for him. The guy they're really talking about under, you know, kind of a, in the hallways, so to speak, off the record is a guy by the name of Kingsley Kiki, number 96 defensive lineman, about a, what, a fifth-round draft choice of thereabouts last year. Uh, didn't play a whole lot as a rookie, but when he did, you could tell this is a guy who has potential. These kids all have to emerge. Um, the way the Packers are going to get better is from within. In a year in which uh, new players on your roster, be they veteran or rookies, are at a disadvantage this year, the guys who know your system, who've been in your system, are, are the guys who have a chance to make the most impact in a year in which you've had no off-season program, uh, no on-field work in mini camps or anything else like that, or OTAs. These are the players who are going to have to come to the fore. Teams like Minnesota are relying on a lot of rookies to come in and play. They're going to have to play, but they're not going to be as ready to play as they normally would had they had a chance to go through the off-season program. Wayne and John, if I may, maybe a last question here because we're getting right up at the top here. We've got about three minutes, John, if you want to sneak one in. What sure. does the season look like from your perspective? Are you going to be, I think John did, did pointed this out, are you going to be in the booth at Lambeau? Will you be traveling? How does this impact someone in your position, Wayne Larrabee? Well, you know, they're, they limit the number of people who are around the team, and uh, you're, they have different tiers of uh, uh, where, you know, if you're in tier two, you get tested every day. Uh, you, if you're going to be involved anywhere near the, the players, um, my role is a little bit different. Um, we're going to be broadcasting from Lambeau Field. We don't know yet if we're going to be traveling or if we're going to be following the baseball model where all of our broadcasts are going to be done from Lambeau Field, whether the team is there or not. Uh, so there's a good chance that we'll be at Lambeau Field when the team is in Minneapolis taking on the Vikings in the opener. We'll be watching the game off monitors and trying to describe it from that. Um, in practice, for example, a lot of times I would stand on the sidelines. There are no fans at training camp, so uh, a lot of us in the media will be in the stands away from uh, the players watching practice. And that, to me, is a better perspective for what I've got to do. So, uh, But, you know, I'm not allowed into the building yet. There are only a certain few people who are allowed in the building from the outside. And, uh, you know, so it's going to be interesting to see, but a lot of what we do is on Zoom, like we're on right now. Uh, all of our interviews come through on Zoom, and uh, you can ask a question, that type of thing, but you don't have that person-to-person -person interaction with players or coaches the way we have in the past. And you understand that. They have to be in a bubble. Less than 90 seconds, John. Take us out here with Wayne. Sure. Uh, Wayne, that key point that you brought up that I just thought it just kind of rang, rang uh, true where if young players are going to have to develop and you're just going to have to be big-time patients. I remember it took Donald Driver a couple of years and then he became a very good player. Brian Williams, the linebacker from USC, first year showed very little, was hurt a little bit, and then second year in 96 took it the next step. There's an opportunity for players, or there's less of an opportunity for these players to show their wares. Yeah, there really is, and it's going to be interesting. Training camp will be a little different. Uh, Matt LaFleur has said that what they'll probably do is work the veterans and then let them go in the last half hour, maybe an hour of training camp practice, work the rookies and free agents and the younger players on that roster in scrimmage situations, more live situations, because they don't have the pregame 
preseason games to get a look at these guys. Nonetheless, it's going to be very difficult for rookies and free agents to make an impact in this season, uh, this COVID season, where they don't get a chance to get that on-field, hands-on experience of the offseason. That's already gone. Uh, you can do what you want. They're trying to evaluate players by making doing some of the rough stuff in practice with these young guys, but it's going to be very difficult to make a you know, determination on who to keep and who not to keep. And, and this is going to be interesting to see how it all pans out. We hit the 10 o'clock hour, Wayne, over the top gratitude to you and for you and John, you as well. Really appreciate it here on the Pippen Dodge Packers podcast. Thank you, My pleasure. Enjoy talking with you. Great pleasure. Take care. See you next time.